Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Veronica West-Harling for a conversation about Ravenna in late antiquity. Dr. West-Harling is Associate Fellow in the Faculty of History at University of Oxford, based in the UK. Her research areas are on the history of early medieval Italy and more specifically 10th century Rome. She is author of numerous publications over her career, including authoring the monograph, Rome, Ravenna and Venice, 750 to 1000, Byzantine heritage, imperial present and the construction of city identity, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she joins us today from Oxford. Welcome to the show, Veronica. Hello, thank you for having me. So to start the conversation off and to create sufficient uh, context and background, Veronica, where is, where is Ravenna and why is it considered important in late antiquity? So when we're chatting about the late antiquity period, why is it uh, considered so important in this uh, period of time uh, from a geopolitical perspective? Okay, so um, starting with uh, the geography, um, if you look at a map uh, of Italy, um, the famous boot, as it's, as it's known, um, you'll see on your western side um, the Tyrrhenian Sea, on the um, eastern side, um, the Adriatic Sea. And uh, if you then look uh, halfway down on the eastern um, side of Italy, going down the coast uh, from, say, uh, the top, which is the Dolomite chain near the Alps, uh, down to um, the heel of Italy, Puglia as it's called, um, halfway uh, sort of down that uh, coast, more or less, is Ravenna. So um, why, why did it become uh, an important city in late antiquity, that is from uh, the late 4th to uh, the uh, 6th century? Well, um, just a sort of brief reminder for those perhaps less familiar with the vicissitudes of the late Roman Empire, uh, the third and fourth centuries are a period of great um, military instability uh, and danger for the empire. The Roman Empire is very much under assault uh, on all its borders, uh, meaning from Persia on its southeastern frontier in Asia um, to the west from Hadrian's Wall in Scotland and much more dangerously in fact by um, uh, peoples of um, what we call broadly Germanic origins uh, in Europe particularly the Franks who are on the other side of the Rhine and the Goths who are on the other side uh, of the Danube and the Balkans. So um, to face this, um, uh, these problems, uh, the uh, rulers of the empire, the, the, the emperor, who was one to start with, decide that they need 
to have more than one person to effectively um, be closer to uh, the borders and the armies that are on the borders. So by the time we get to the fourth century, um, by the end of the fourth century, certainly, uh, the empire is effectively split into two. So we have a, an eastern part and a western part. And each of these has got an emperor at its head who are equal to each other. Um, the most um, famous one, as it were, in contemporary terms, uh, tends to be the one in the east, who is now established in a new capital, they actually call it New Rome, um, Constantinople, which is being built around about the three um, thirties. The one who interests us, however, is the other one, the one who is in the West. And here we have a, a, a considerable problem in that uh, it's it's okay to build another capital for for yourself. Um, a long way away from um, what is the very much the symbol of, of the Roman Empire, the symbolic centre of the Roman Empire, which is Rome. Uh, it's a lot harder to do it when you are actually sort of much closer to Rome. So um, the problem um, that uh, arises is that the emperor ought, the Western emperor ought to be in Rome, but on the other hand, the geographical position of Rome um, is really very difficult um, in military terms. I mean, Rome is uh, quite a long way down um, towards the south of Italy. It looks west, where most of the people who are attacking the empire come from the northeast. Um, and it is a long way from the borders with a big chain of mountains in between. So what happens over this period of the fourth centuries that gradually um, the uh, Western uh, emperors um, decide that, okay, Rome remains, shall we say, the symbolic or the psychological sort of capital uh, of the empire. But in practice, um, the emperors and their armies get um, constantly closer and closer to uh, the borders. So they move their central, uh, their centers of operations to um, different cities. Um, for example, Trier on the Rhine, uh, Milan, which is closer to the Alps, and then eventually, um, round about the, the beginning of the fifth century, well, the year 402 has been mentioned sometimes, um, more specifically, Ravenna. So why, why choose Ravenna? Well, as we saw it sort of geographically, Ravenna is about halfway down the coast. But um, what is important in addition to that are two, two other factors. The first factor is that Ravenna was already the main naval, the military port of the Western Empire of the Roman Empire, in effect, really, since the first emperor um, in the first century. So it had been already turned into um, a military port 
with with great sort of facilities um, uh, 300 years before, uh, precisely because it looked to the right, towards the right side of the Mediterranean. And this port had been constantly rebuilt, enhanced, um, improved, and so on. Um, and it ended up being uh, probably the best base um, for uh, the Navy. And the port itself, the port of Ravenna, um, has the name of uh, Classe, um, and this location still exists today. And that is very significant because Classe comes from Classis, which means Navy um, in, uh, in Latin, classical Latin. The second reason why um, Ravenna was a good place is also that um, it was easy to defend. It was easier to defend not just from the sea, obviously, with, um, you know, with, with a force of the fleet, um, but it was easy to defend because it's placed to the southern, um, uh, immediately to the south of the Po Delta, which is effectively a vast area of marshland. Um, which uh, is to, uh, which is very difficult to um, access in terms of roads, and then in addition to that, just for belts and braces reason, it becomes um, in the uh, in the fourth century it it acquires some walls, so it becomes a walled city. Um, Veronica, when when Rome. Uh the Western Roman Empire, when they when they uh, moved the capital to Ravenna, in this period of time, did did legislatures exist? That might be a bit an, anachronistic, but but to what degree was it like a like formally moving it? Is it a case of the emperor at the time happening to, to live there principally or was there something more foundational that was being built there? Yes. Um, well, that's a, a very good question. It is indeed the fact, obviously, that the emperor lives there um, with his court, and that is, you know, uh, an imperial court is a very uh, awesome thing to behold at that time. There are a lot of people, a lot of civil servants, um, a lot of uh, uh, people associated with running what is effectively um, the, uh, the the domestic side of the um, of the court, but uh, what it um, also involves is uh, therefore the shift uh, on uh, on the one hand of all this um, uh, of all these things like um, uh, the, the the court and the civil servants and the elites, um, but it also. Uh, acquires through imperial uh, design um, various elements that make it as close as possible to a truly imperial capital on the model of Rome um, and of Constantinople. That is, uh, public buildings and government buildings, um, basilicas, um, defenses, uh, uh, circus, hippodrome temples, um, uh, bridges, and even uh, more spectacularly, and that is, of course, a very, very important point at that, uh, at that stage, a mint. 
So in other words, the empress actually mint coinage in Ravenna. Yeah, and uh, given this this uh, period of time, those all sound like very um, significant um, items for this for this city. So a lot uh, happens in the Western Roman Empire in the fifth century yes. CE. Yes. So can you speak about what the what the major event, or if you want to mention more than one major event, if you think relevant for this conversation, that happens in this in this century? Right. So, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, it is a uh, rather tumultuous um, century, the 5th century. There is a great deal uh, going on from the very fact that for the first time we have a split um, between the uh, two parts of the empire and they start to go their different ways. Um, They also start increasingly to use different languages Uh, because uh, obviously the eastern part was always more uh, focused on Greek as opposed to the western part of the empire of Europe as we think of it now, or Western Europe, which is um, uh, functions with uh, Latin. So um, what happens is partly associated with um, the the fate of the the most... um, a prominent Roman family throughout uh, this period, imperial Roman family. Um, the emperor who had moved his capital to Ravenna was called Honorius, had um, a sister, um, and uh, when uh, he moved behind the walls of Ravenna because uh, the rest of the, uh, the of Italy, including Rome, where his sister was, were under attack from the Goths, um, uh, and the Goths were ruled uh, and led by a man called Alaric. Um, when this, this happened, the emperor's sister was uh, taken as a hostage by Alaric and um, the the gods after they had um, attacked Rome. And she went to, um, she had to to spend quite a bit of time um, with uh, these uh, Gothic uh, armies um, going, in fact, all the way across uh, Italy. And then eventually she... um, was made to marry uh, the brother of Alaric, who had died in the meantime, um, and became, therefore, uh, the uh, ruling sort of female element, shall we say, uh, of uh, the Gothic uh, attackers of um, the Roman Empire. Now, this was something that was almost as significant as Rome falling Um, to Alaric in 410, which was a major, major shock, psychological shock for the Roman world. Um, Another almost as great psychological shock was uh, a member, a woman from the royal family, born to the purple, as it were, uh, who had to marry, was made to marry a a Germanic or barbarian ruler, as um, they would have been called at the time. So the, um, the next part of the story, which I, <clears throat> I can't go into in, 
in, uh, in great detail, but uh, I will mention briefly because this is an important, um, uh, for once, a, a, a case of, of somebody actually having a considerable impact on the, uh, on the events. Um, the, uh, the Emperor uh, Honorius eventually dies in Ravenna, uh, and in the meantime, he has um, managed to uh, marry his widowed sister to another general, um, and this widowed sister had uh, a son. So now to give them names, this the sister in question, this very important woman, is called Gala Placidia, and her son, who is going to become the next uh, emperor, is called Valentinian, Valentinian III. However, uh, Gala Placidia, when her brother dies, um, has a very young uh, child as a, as a son, she's about three or four years old. So for the next 25 years, she is the empress and she rules effectively over the Western Roman Empire. She is, uh, she's there in Ravenna most of the time. Um, I won't go into the sort of details and specific details of her rule uh, in Ravenna, except to say that she leads the armies as well as building churches and having scholars at her court and so on. Um, and then eventually um, her son takes over when he becomes uh, uh, of age uh, in 450. His mother dies. We're halfway sort of through the century by now. And um, this son, Valentinian, decides to return to Rome, to, to return to his capital to Rome. Well, it's not a very good idea because um, clearly he is more vulnerable. Everybody, he makes the whole empire more vulnerable. Within five years, he's been assassinated. And the whole series of generals then um, take over uh, and rule, not as emperors, obviously they can't, because you can't actually get as it were, to become an emperor if you are not uh, a Roman, if you're not born within the Roman family at that point. Obviously, if you are one of these foreign generals, Germanic generals, um, whether you are a Goth or something else, you know, you can all you can do is be the effective ruler in the name of the emperor. So we have several of these uh, generals who rule one after the other, um, and who, uh, on the other hand, interestingly, also leave Rome and go back to Ravenna, which is uh, a, a better place in terms of protection. So up to that point, um, and we are uh, effectively now um, coming to the sort of, as I said, the, the second um, the second half, you know, we're in the fourth, um, uh, 460s already uh, of, the, of the century. Um, we get on even further in the, in the um, 470s until one of these uh, generals um, who was first of all, for a long time uh, in Constantinople himself, 
comes over in it to Italy with his armies, his Gothic armies, conquers Italy and becomes this time not simply a ruling general, but the king of Italy for the first time. And the name of this man is Theodoric. Okay, and we'll obviously spend some time uh, in this conversation on uh, the that period of time where Theodoric uh, reigned. Um, after Valentinian, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I might have wrote it down incorrectly because I kept looking at it and I couldn't say it correctly. Um, Valentinian. So when he was assassinated in Rome, you said, right? Yes. Um, so after he was assassinated, can you can you speak about uh, what st what state Ravenna would have uh, fallen under at this point? Because um, there's before before that, clearly um, there was still a Western Roman empire um but then you also mentioned the the the, the goths are on the peninsula i think you had mentioned in your your response that uh they were ruling by at one point by ravenna so can you speak just in that in this period after his assassination where ravenna would have fe fallen from a sovereignty perspective well uh nothing changed as far as ravenna was concerned nothing changed the emperor had gone back to his other major capital which is rome um he uh he left behind um the whole administrative system uh in the hand of his bureaucrats he left the uh, bishops who were um you know the, the very important people in terms of local government um, as well as the imperial bureaucrats in, um, in Ravenna. Um, he went off, he was um, killed. Um, he, had, he was succeeded by somebody else who was uh, crowned emperor. There were still emperors, technically, until the last one was deposed in 476. But these emperors were really just figureheads. The people who governed were the generals, the people who were behind those sort of nominal emperors. So it didn't do any, it, there was no, no change as far as, as Ravenna was concerned, because by then um, it was already, as you said, the, uh, it, it, it had a, a status of government city independently of whether the emperor was there or not. In 476, you said the last emperor was deposed. Where, where did that happen? Well, it was one of these generals who um, uh, who, who deposed uh, the emperor. The, the, the emperor was a child. Um, he was about six because, you know, they were sticking to the kind of rule of succession um, within the imperial family. And, and obviously, um, it, it got to the point where it was... Uh, even more of an issue if you have a six-year-old um, child who's supposed to be the, the, the Western emperor, obviously somebody else is going to do the governing. Um, and at that, that point, uh, the, um, the person in charge effectively decided that um, they were going to dispense uh, with completely with, um, uh, with the, the, the person of the, uh, of the emperor uh, itself. And um, 
in this this man, so as I said, Odoacre effectively gets rid of the um, of the emperor and says, from now on, I am governor of Italy. Now, this, of course, doesn't happen simply because he says so. In order to for it to be uh, to function and for him to be accepted in that role, um, he has to have uh, a sort of a, a imperial. Um, uh, an imperial recognition, shall we say, of the of the status. Now, obviously, since there is no emperor left um, in the West, that recognition has to come from the emperor in Constantinople. And the general in question does indeed um, ask the emperor in Constantinople, "Will you uh, give me the title, the official title, of governor of the city, etc.?" and that is um, accepted, um, and that is how uh, the government stays in Ravenna, but um, at no longer uh, with an emperor in place. Okay, and the the last uh, emperor in the West that was deposed that was Romulus Augustulus. That's right. Okay. That's right. Which which everybody, even at the time, I think, um, and it's worth sort of keeping that in mind for a, for a, a laugh or at least a smile, um, the last emperor um, of, the Roman, of the Roman Empire, at least in the West, was called Romulus, which I think contemporaries found quite hilarious, um, as in the founder of Rome, of course. Um, so um, staying then with this general, um, who, who gained the sort of authority, um, who, as I said, was called Odoaca. What um, happened is that he uh, remained in place, but um, he uh, then had to cope with uh, another of the ideas that the uh, Emperor in Constantinople came up with under duress. So let me go back very briefly to this um, Emperor in Constantinople called Zeno. Mm -hmm. um, what happened, what had happened, is that during the conflicts with the Goths in the Balkans, because the Eastern emperors also had conflicts with their own Goths and barbarians, so to speak. Um, one of the, um, uh, the the eldest son of uh, the Gothic ruler, the ruler of the Goths, had been taken as a hostage um, to be uh, brought up in Constantinople at the imperial court, um, just like Gala Placidia. I mean, it was a, quite a common. Uh, ploy to do to to, to remove the um, the heir of your enemy and bring it up at your own uh, court in your own culture, so to speak, and hope that that's going to that was going to to help in future. Um, and this man, who is a hostage um, at the court of Constantinople, is called Theodoric, and 
um, he does indeed uh, grow up being very much um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, admiring very much the, um, the imperial system in Constantinople. He's educated there in the uh, 460s. He understands very well the principles of Roman government and administration. He is, uh, uh, he's very taken with the glamour of Constantinople and its monuments and so on. And then when he comes of age, of course, he is sent back to um, his people to be the new uh, ruler of these people. Um, he does that and um, he proves himself an extremely able military commander uh, who um, then proceeds to impose his authority among his people, among the Goths, um, by conquering territories by fighting um, against the Romans in many places, and in um, the most extreme case, by um, being so uh, competent and so successful that he reaches the walls of Constantinople and um, ends up uh, putting Constantinople itself at risk from um, uh, Gothic pressure. Well, at that point, that, that's where I'm, I'm sort of coming back to the emperor's uh, idea under duress. Um, the emperor Zeno, who um, does what other people, have, the emperors have done in the past, um, in the eastern part of the empire, suggests to Theodoric that uh, maybe rather than attacking Constantinople, he would be better off going to Italy and conquering Italy. And should he do that, should, should he be successful in um, uh, getting rid of the current general in Italy, then, um, then Italy was his. And he, the emperor, was quite happy to let him um, uh, rule over it. So, Veronica, started, oh, sorry, yes. uh, point, point of clarification then. You had mentioned earlier there was a, a um, uh, it was somewhat of a imperial title, it sounded like. I think you, you used the term imperial recognition um, and the, the term, like the term governor. Was that, was that Odoacker? Was that Odoacker? Yes, okay, yes, okay. Yes. So in he this. Was, he was mm -hmm. acknowledged um, by the emperor, but he wasn't an emperor himself. I mean, no, no, but no general, Gothic, Frankish, or any other kind, actually became an emperor. Okay, I, I understand, and this okay. is the, this is the point I want to clarify with you. Then, what was the dynamic then with uh, Odoacer? And so, at this point in time, when um, the the emperor in Constantinople, the the Byzantine Empire. Yeah. Emperor in the East is is suggesting it sounds like to Theodoric that he should almost turn around and and right go to the Italian Peninsula. But then on the yes. other hand, there's this um, somewhat sanctioned, if we can use that term, yes. Um, yes, go indeed. governor Odoacer. So can you speak yes. about I what was going on well, with yes, that I dynamic? See your point exactly, <laughs> but the emperor didn't have a problem with that. He said to Theodoric, you know, there is a general in place who's not recognized by us as being the ruler of Italy, if you manage to um, kick him out, uh, then we'll acknowledge you. So it's, um, you know, the, the, it's not a question of, oh, my honor says that I have accepted Odoacer and will not change from this. 
um, under duress of you know attacks on Constantinople, um, the the line um, often taken was, um, could we please um, persuade you kindly to go and attack somewhere else? And generally speaking. Um, the situation always tended to be that the Eastern emperors sent people off to the West and to Italy because the two, in a sense, that is itself symptomatic. The two areas had become uh, already sort of psychologically different and separated. The Greek part which then called the Byzantine Empire, has had far more of a focus on the East and on the integrity of the uh, Eastern part of um, that empire, shall we say, from the Balkans and Greece all the way to uh, Persia and, you know, in Asia Minor. So if they could, um, if they could safeguard this by uh, pushing people towards the West, um, uh, and that included Italy and Rome, which they were far less uh, attached to, shall we say, then that's exactly what they did. Okay, I understand. Thank you. Okay, what happens, what happens next in the chronology, Veronica? So what happens next is that um, uh, the uh, Odoacre in Italy uh, is challenged by, um, by Theodoric, and um, and therefore, at uh, at that point, you know, within um, effectively within almost a, a year, uh, the um, the city of Ravenna falls to Theodoric and um, his uh, Goths, and therefore it becomes um, the Odoacer is in turn assassinated, and Theodoric takes over. Um, first of all as ruler of Ravenna with imperial sanction um, and subsequently uh, as king of the Goths um, as elected by his own arm. So Theodoric in, in, in reality brings together two different political identities, shall we say, um, one of which is that he is elected um, king of the Goths by the Goths, by, by essentially the Gothic armies and warriors. And on the other hand, he governs Ravenna and um, is given various titles, including consul and so on and so forth by um, the, the emperor. And eventually um, is given uh, a kind of new-ish title also by the emperor, which is King of Italy. So being King of Italy means in this context that he is the emperor's representative in Italy uh, among and over the Italians and the Romans so to speak. Whereas being king of the Goths, he is the king of, of uh, he's the leader of the army of um, the invading Goths. So it's um, 
one of the, the key um, elements that we will see very much in the landscape of um, Ravenna in throughout the government of Theodoric, who does rule from Ravenna, that is his capital, is precisely the attempt to create a kind of synergy between the two sets of people. Um, so on the one hand, we have you know, the attackers, the incomers, the migrants, whichever way you want to sort of call them, i.e. those who have conquered military, the city, that's the gods. And on the other hand, you have all these people who live in, um, in Ravenna because it has been an imperial capital, that is, uh, the bureaucrats, the merchants, the, um, uh, the, the people who run uh, the, the, the fleet, who run government offices, who, um, uh, the bishops and their whole personnel and so on, who are, of course, broke as they see themselves, that's what they call themselves, Romans. Do, so, do, do scholars, Veronica, consider a difference between the terms Goths and Ostrogoths, or are they the same? Can you can you speak about about that? Um, well, Ostro the, the terms of Ostrogoths and Visigoths didn't um, exist at the time. The Goths didn't call themselves um, Ostrogoths or Visigoths, which basically means Eastern and Western Goths. They just call themselves Goths. That, that's it. Okay. That's, they saw themselves as a sort of one, one unit. Okay, that clarifies that. Okay. okay. So, so what happened, therefore, in, um, in Ravenna during the, the, um, uh, the reign of Theodoric, which is a very long reign, Theodoric dies in 526, and you know he, he effectively takes over more or less in 489, 490. It's quite quite a quite a long time. Um, he, uh, in the first instance, he preserves the separation of the of the two. Um, for example, in terms of legislation. The gods have their own laws, the Romans have their own laws, uh, the gods have their own uh, form of uh, taxation, which is military service, the Romans pay taxes, um, and, and so on. So there is that, um, that there are these two different um, elements to which is added a third one. I, I, I'm going to try and be as quick as possible on this, which is, is a very, very... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, tricky and long sort of problem, namely the religious one. Um, the uh, Goths and most Germanic peoples in Europe had been converted to Christianity, but it was a slightly different form of Christianity, um, which had been preached to them by uh, a, a man uh, delegated um, by the founder of this doctrine called Arius. Um, and this slightly different doctrine, um, which fundamentally has a different understanding of the role of the Trinity, that's why I don't want to go into it in too much detail. Um, basically, uh, most of the uh, of these uh, peoples, of the sort of Germanic peoples, are called um, Aryans. 
like you know on the basis of the name of Arius who um, who created this particular form of uh, religious allegiance. Now what we then have it's not um, uh, Theodoric is not the first one to be an Arian or indeed the Goths in Ravenna under him are not the first ones to be Arians because there had got been Goths before and there had been Odoaca and people like that and they're all Arians. So what you have in the first instance, as I say in Ravenna, is two um, two laws, two forms of taxations, um, uh, and two sets of uh, of uh, religious hierarchies and churches, and they function um, more or less sort of side by side, uh, but gradually, and that is a, a very you know I was kind of very very quick on uh, on on this gradually. Theodoric attempts to create more of a synergy um, between these two. And he does that by using the Roman-style government and the court and the palace, the prestige of the buildings and the coinage, which is in the name of the emperor, um, and the officials, the same hierarchy of bureaucrats and officials, um, and ambassadors and senators as ministers and so on, as there had been before, um, just occasionally he puts some gods in those positions. So he basically fundamentally uses that, um, that structure. Um, he has a, a brilliant um, court with a great many intellectuals who are highly respected. Um, he gets on very well with the Pope, and he goes on visit to Rome, even though he is an Arian, as I said, indeed, they were supposed to be um, heretics, um, and so on. And then last thing about Theodoric, and, and then I'll just sort of mention very briefly uh, uh, the next stage, the next, the, the last thing about him is that he um, also creates an enormous network, a diplomatic network outside Italy. Um, he, mar he marries the sister of the Frankish king Clovis. Um, his uh, respective children um, marry, especially daughters, um, the sons of uh, the king of Burgundy, of the king of the Visigoths, and so on. So he, he creates this this kind of um, Mediterranean stroke, um, Aquitanian and up to Spanish um, empire within within sort of the one rule. Um, now that unfortunately is not going to um, remain sort of under um, after his death, and again, without going into the the exact details of uh, of what uh, happens, um, the fact is that uh, the people, the, the Romans in Italy. Um, are always still hankering after a Roman emperor. Um, the Goths in Italy are rather unhappy that Theodoric's daughter, who becomes his successor, is too Romanized, has too much of the sort of Roman values, uh, and and that's what she sort of gives her, you know, to her, her son. So. 
for, for sort of various um, elements come together um, and rather foolishly um, one of the uh, the goths the sort of cousin of the queen um, uh, after attempting to get rid of her um, allows her because she has no choice to appeal for help to the emperor in Constantinople and then subsequently has her assassinated. Now that uh, basically is um, a very good reason um, that for the emperor in Constantinople who at that time um, is uh, called Justinian to say that um, he will attempt to reconquer Italy and put it back into um, a, a sort of Roman, larger sort of Roman Empire. And effectively, um, after a, a, an excruciatingly long and terrible war um, called the Gothic War, which takes place um, between uh, shall we say that the first, well, 532 is really when the Byzantine armies first come to Italy. Um, 552, um, 535, sorry, I said that. 552 is really when the last of the Goths finally um, gives up. Um, during this long period of 20 years of, of exhausting wars sort of in Italy, which, um, which are centered around Ravenna, because that is where the uh, armies of Justinian um, and his generals tend to um, have their kind of headquarters. Eventually, there is a peace. The Gothic kingdom disappears. And um, Ravenna, on the other hand, which hadn't suffered quite so much because it was a city, it was behind its walls, it still had uh, quite a lot of trade, of course, with, you know, that sort of um, from the port of Classe, the Mediterranean. Um, it had some very rich people, um, bankers, um, rich um, landowners and people who lived in the city. Um, an increasingly cosmopolitan population because with the Byzantine armies came also more and more people from the eastern part of the empire, Greeks. Um, so Ravenna continues to, uh, to, to flourish. Um, Italy is in a bad way. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why uh, when Justinian and then his successor decide to create a capital, in Italy to, to effectively sort of have their, their own capital once now that they have conquered Italy. That capital is again Ravenna and not Rome. The, so uh, that's... No, it's, it, you did an excellent job. You and I both know this, Veronica. There's a lot of ground to cover with this kind of topic inside of an hour. You're, you're, doing, you're yes. doing great with it. Um, so as we're wrapping up here, so uh, I want to clarify. So the woman that was assassinated in Ravenna uh, that you that you had mentioned um, was she the uh, the this the wife or the 
uh, daughter of Theodora. Can you say again what, what the she relationship? Was, she was his daughter. Okay. His daughter. And I'm quite happy to give you her name, but Please. you will have quite Please. a lot of... It'll take you some time to, run, to actually write it down. Her name was Amalasunta, which is not exactly... It doesn't trip off the top. It's on. It's on the recording. So under the the time pressures, I'm not going to try and uh, repronounce yeah. <laughs> that right away. Okay. Um, okay. So is it known who assassinated her? And is it known the? Um, is it known what? Uh, what I'm what I'm kind of getting at with this thinking is 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 it is it believed at all that this was an excuse for the Byzantines to um, invade? Uh, Ravenna, or was or it was this really uh, a very wholesome in, trying to intervene on a on a bad on a difficult situation? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that's good. That was a piece of string. Well, um, mm. so the, she was assassinated by her cousin, whom she had invited to be co-ruler uh, with her because um, uh, it was generally considered that it would probably be safer to have a sort of a, a military leader as a man, as well as a queen. Um, and he is the one who uh, was at the root of um, her assassination. He was the... the Maybe not the hand, but obviously the, the, you know, the spirit behind it. Now, she had asked the emperor for help, because remember that the king, or in this instance, queen of the Goths, was still uh, in that position as a delegate of the emperor. Okay, remember that these people did not rule sort of of their own uh, bat or in their own sort of right, they actually ruled as delegate of the emperor. So faced with the hostility of um, her co-ruler, um, she had decided to appeal about his head, as it were, to the emperor. The emperor um, was uh, Justinian, who is in, a, in one way a very interesting figure because he is the last emperor of um, the, the Roman Empire who was actually born in the western part of the empire and who spoke Latin as a first language. Uh, so he'd always had this dream, as it were, of, you know, oh, yes, one day, you know, we'll reconquer um, the, uh, the empire. Having had this appeal, um, was a very good pretext for following it, following it up. It is entirely possible that in addition to the pretext, he was also rather shocked at having, you know, his delegates sort of applying for help and being assassinated before he could respond. So, which one was it? Um, it? It's, you know, it's hard to tell because one doesn't, you know, know what, what Justinian thought. The only thing that one could say is that Justinian 
had already started to look around for ways of reconquering the western part of the empire. He had already started um, his reconquest in North Africa and the southern part of Spain. So it was really, um, unfortunately, the, the not, obviously not very intelligent cousin had played right in the hands of uh, Justinian um, by allowing this, this sort of pretext, so to speak, by, by making it possible for him to intervene um, in order to punish the murderers of uh, the queen. So at the uh, start of the period, Ravenna was a, an important city, and it sounds like by the end of the period, it was also an important city. Yes, I, I would say that by, by the period that we're talking about, which is the, uh, the, the Byzantine reconquest of Italy, um, Ravenna was more important than it had been um, to start with when it was a convenient um, uh, imperial uh, palace and capital um, for military uh, purposes. And uh, by the end of it, it really was the capital of Byzantine Italy. Okay. Again, Veronica, you did really good today, covering a lot of ground in under, under 60 minutes. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. West Harling wrote, Rome, Ravenna, and Venice, 750 to 1000, Byzantine Heritage, Imperial Present, and the Construction of City Identity. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Veronica and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.